0: From the studios of Boise State Public Radio News, I'm Chema Gaudet. You're listening to Idaho Matters. It's Friday, time for our Reporter Roundtable. We're going to get you up to date on the news that made headlines this last week. And today, our panelists include Don Day, the founder and editor of BoiseDev.com, Scott McIntosh, opinion editor with the Idaho Statesman, Carly Flandro, reporter with Idaho Ed News, and Logan Finney with Idaho Reports. Hey, everybody. Happy Friday. Good to have you here. Happy Friday. Friday. So, Scott, I want to begin our discussion today uh, with the Idaho Republican Party deciding to ban the media from its upcoming presidential caucus.
1: Right. Um, the The Idaho Republican Party presidential caucus is coming up on March second, um, and uh, Clark Corbin with the Idaho Capital Sun has been doing a lot of reporting on this, on the caucus, and and letting folks know what's coming up. And he reported this week. Um, that the uh, the rules that have been passed by the Idaho Republican Party um, say that only um, registered Republicans and their minor children are going to be allowed into the caucus sites. There's going to be about 210 caucus sites uh, across the state. And unless you are uh, registered uh, a registered Republican, they're saying you're not going to be allowed into the, the buildings. Some of these buildings are in private sites like churches, But a lot of these caucus sites are are public buildings, uh, which raises an interesting issue, uh, whether um, the Republican Party can ban uh, Idaho citizens, Mm -hmm. taxpayers from a public building. Uh, But be that as it may, um, on March 2nd, uh, reporters will not be allowed uh, inside um, these caucus sites, and um, reporters will not be able to watch the tabulation of the votes. So um, the way that the the caucus is going to run is that uh, they're all going to be paper ballots um, and they're all going to be hand counted. There are going to be no machines <clears throat> um, and they're all going to be hand counted and uh, uh, reporters will not be allowed to watch that that uh, tabulation. Um, now this this differs, the caucus differs from a presidential primary and we can talk about that um, mm-hmm. a, a little bit later. But the um, The the caucus is different from a presidential primary with a presidential primary uh, where people are voting and the 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 primary is run by elections offices reporters are allowed to go in and witness and see um, how those votes are being tabulated and and watch the process all along the way, Um, and so. This move by the Republican Party is being decried by a lot of folks, including the Idaho Press Club, which uh, of which I am a board member, um, and Idahoans for openness in government, um, decrying this as, you know, a, a level of secrecy. Um, and when you're mm-hmm. talking about a political process, um, that it is it is it breeds uh, suspicion um, and Uh, takes away a layer of transparency that we really need, particularly for a a democratic process.
0: So Scott, I mean, I think you're, that's the point I want to dig in a little deeper on is the, this idea of, um, of really transparency, right. And, and concerns because if, if the rule is you can only be a registered Republican with your minor children, all right, fine. You're a Republican. It's the Republican caucus. However, we do have a free media, you know, right? And and then you have public buildings on top of it. And to ban the media, um, it, it raises a lot of questions about what is going on inside there and why don't they want the media there, right? I mean, right. even if everything's above board, why then would you not allow the media to be there?
1: Right. And, and, you know, no one is suggesting that there would be any shenanigans or tomfoolery. Right. Uh, ton uh, of However, um, without the, the media being present, um, it, it just, it, as, as Betsy Russell, she is the president of Idahoans for openness uh, in government. Um, secrecy breeds uh, suspicion that, that it might engender mm-hmm. um, a level of, of doubt or concern uh, if, if, if citizens don't know that they're being watched, and and, and keep in mind too that caucuses are, are necessarily more limiting because with a primary, you show up anytime you want at the polling place between 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. You can vote by mail, you can vote absentee ballot, um, but with a caucus, you have to show up at a specified time at a specified location, um, and you have to cast your vote vote. Um, you, you can leave after that, but um, they're expecting this process to go on for about five or six hours um, on March 2nd. And um, not, not everybody can can do that. So there's necessarily limited involvement, engagement in caucuses compared with the primary um, um, Republican Party Chairwoman Dorothy Moon said she expected or hoped for 100,000 uh, people out of the 585,000 registered Republicans. Um, which doesn't seem like a really great turnout to me. Um, and so you're going to have as many, even if, if those uh, come to fruition, you're still going to have uh, almost half a million people who are not participating in the caucus. And uh, they would probably want some sort of uh, level of security knowing that, that someone was watching. There are going to be poll watchers, and there are gonna be, um, the candidates will have surrogates who will be watching the process. So it's not a complete secret um, mm-hmm. process, but having the media there just adds another level of, of scrutiny that that is necessary for this kind of process.
2: And, and Gemma, if I can add <clears throat> one thing, Scott and I yeah. are both on the Press Club's First Amendment Committee, we talked about this on Monday, and there's a funny bit of nuance, which is if a reporter is a member of the Republican Party, um, they can go to the caucus. And right. so there are, there are actually a number of, of reporters who are registered, um, in the Republican primary. Obviously that's not something people like to talk about loudly, but, um, you know, it is kind of this funny thing where in Idaho, that is where a lot of the decisions, uh, are made. And, and so, Hey, for reporters as a Republican, a registered Republican, they actually can go. And, uh, Scott can correct me if I'm wrong. I haven't heard that there would be any attempt to bar them from uh, recounting their experiences there. So I think we might see a little bit of that um, for the caucus. Correct.
0: Well, and I'm glad you brought up that point, Don, because I, as we were having this conversation, I was thinking that I'm like, well, what if you're a registered Republican and you're a reporter? Can't you go? Yeah. And, and yeah. I think that goes back, though, to the assumption of this, quote, liberal media. If you are in the media, you then therefore must not be a Republican or registered as one.
2: And it's funny because the reporter will um, have to—I um, I get "out" oh, not the right word. I, there's a better term there, but they will have to sort of reveal.
0: They'll that have to Republican be transparent
2: because you—I mean, the, 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 transparent or not, it will be self-evident because right. you can't be there unless you were a registered Republican, and that's public record, and, and you know people have looked that up before, and it's not a super secret, but. You know like look i don't like to say if i'm a democrat or republican or how i vote and i try and just adhere to the facts and tell people things but you know there are reporters who will have to say something that may make people presuppose
3: something about their coverage that may or may not be true yeah and i'd, right. I'd well, love to play devil's advocate for yeah, go a second ahead, Gemma. um yeah. it's you know it's not an explicit ban on the media specifically it's it's the rules are It's an event by the Republican Party for the Republican Party. It's a caucus, not a primary like we've referenced. So it's an entirely private event. The state government is not involved at all. Um, So, you know, there's an argument that if something similar like a Rotary Club was holding an event in a public building, that doesn't necessarily give you the right to go and participate in it. Um, So, yeah, it's we're we're seeing the weird details that have come about as an effect of not having the option to run a primary this year.
0: Well, yeah, but if you pay, you can go to the Rotary Club. So there's, you know, the the spring yeah, and, and, and anyone told, can I,
3: affiliate with the Republican Party.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I know. I appreciate all. Oh, there's so much nuance to this. It's it's very fascinating, and I. I think probably not the, the end of this discussion. Uh, with and I think that it's said, interesting look, to show that
2: journalists aren't a monolith because we're all sort of saying different right. things, right? Sometimes people think we all think the same way, and I don't know if
0: that's true. <laughs> well, there, there is that. Um, Logan, the Idaho Senate passed a bill, I, th- I believe yesterday, um, that would add a mandatory minimum prison sentence for trafficking fentanyl. Can you talk about this? Because my understanding is there are some concerns coming from, from some legislators about this.
3: Yeah, this, this fentanyl mandatory minimum bill has been one of the big headline issues of the session. Um, I, I think I was on your show here talking about the bill a couple of weeks mm-hmm. ago. And yes, it passed through the Senate um, yesterday on Thursday. So that's the second chamber it's gone through, meaning it's on its way to Governor Brad Little's desk for his uh, signature or veto. Um, I would expect a signature, seeing as as the governor has been um, pushing the issue of fentanyl very hard with how, uh, how many deaths the state has seen and whatnot. Uh, But yeah, as you mentioned, a lot of the lawmakers um, voted in favor of it, but had a lot of concerns coming along with that. Um, There's kind of some general trepidation over whether mandatory minimums are effective as a deterrent or whether they're just contributing to, um, you know, our our high incarceration rate in America and uh, in in Idaho, especially we have a a very high uh, female prison population compared to other states. Um, mm-hmm. And actually, interestingly, even though a lot of concerns were expressed, it came down to almost a party line vote. Um, one of the Republicans, Senator Phil Hart from Kellogg, voted no. And one of the Democrats, Senator Ron Taylor from Haley, um, voted yes. So, um, you know, one from each kind of kind of crossed across the aisle. Um, but multiple lawmakers like Senator Jim Guthrie, he said he was kind of a fifty-one forty-nine on the fence, whether he was going to vote in favor or against it or not. and. Um, a lot of a lot of people who really want to do something about fentanyl and send the message that Idaho is going to be doing something strong about fentanyl, um, but def- definitely not without concern.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, Don, can we talk a little bit about uh, the the Boise Airport hangar which collapsed late last month? Um, we do know that they were building this to replace another hangar, but my understanding, Don, is that this was part of kind of an entire airport. Expansion, but I mean, but the but the airport hangar is a private entity. So yeah, this how is does all this? Tiny, yeah,
2: this is a tiny bit complicated, but <clears throat> but important, I think. Um, as has been reported, the land that the hangar that was under construction and collapsed uh, was on is owned publicly. It's owned by the Boise Airport, the city of Boise. Um, but a private hangar <clears throat> was being built on that land. This is what's called a ground lease. It's pretty common where uh, somebody will lease a piece of property generally for a really long time um, and then build their own building on top of it. So they own the building, mm-hmm. but they don't own the land. And that that's what's uh, at play here. Uh, the airport uh, is in the kind of the midst of a fairly major expansion that's rolling out over just about a decade. And one of the key pieces of this <clears throat> is they want to add a new concourse. If you've ever been to the airport you might notice that there's a concourse B and a concourse C but no concourse A and you know mm-hmm. I, uh, when i was taught the alphabet it started with A not B and <laughs> um, part of that was is because there's always been this plan to add a concourse A. Well the airport's working to do that now and it would essentially form a T. So if you think about the the way the airport is now and you mm-hmm. walk through security into that um, area where there's the Greenbelt Market gift shop and, and uh, the, the, the bagel place, what's that called? Einstein mm-hmm. Brothers. <clears throat> if you look to your left, there is uh, Concourse uh, B. If you go downstairs, there's Concourse C and then the, the gates kind of jut out from there. And so they sort of form an L. The idea is you would walk through security and to your right, there would be a new Concourse A. To do that, it's this really complicated thing because that area is currently taken up by employee parking and rental car parking. And so they have to get that stuff out of the way. And Mm -hmm. so to do that, other things have to move. Uh, They're building new garages, one for employees and um, two for rental cars. And the uh, two rental car garages will actually uh, happen in two phases. Jackson Jet Center, Uh, which is owned uh, by the family that also controls Jackson's food stores here in the Valley um, has a hangar that is in an area where the airport plans to build uh, a rental car parking garage. And part of that property would include the, what's called the apron, which is kind of the area around uh, the the planes used to access the concourse. Mm -hmm. And so this current hangar has to be torn down. Now, Jackson jet, uh, Jackson jet center officials were working to replace that capacity. What was in that, that hangar elsewhere. And so they have a lease on some property that's further up the road. And that property is where this hangar collapsed. And so you have this situation now where Jackson jet was hoping to build this hangar so that when the lease comes up on the other hangar in uh, 2027, uh, the airport can tear it down and all the I guess the planes that are inside of it, I actually don't know what's inside. I presume planes um, can mm-hmm. move to the new hangar. <clears throat> the city, the, the airport, contends uh, correctly that the lease ends in 2027, the hangar will come down. Um, I don't think that they have shown any real flexibility on that, obviously. That's still three years from now. Um, we asked Jackson Jet what their, what their plan is, right? You've got this kind of difficult situation i think is fair to say where mm-hmm. um, you know this this hangar is, is going to move they knew that it's part of the lease agreement that this is not you know controversial in any way um and so they were building this new hangar and it it collapsed and and you know it, more than just the, the building collapsed who cares about that right it's just steel but it, i shouldn't say that people do care but but the more important part is that three people lost their lives here and and right yeah. um, another bunch of people, um, were sent to the hospital and, and it impacts families and lives and is a very difficult situation for the families of those three individuals who've passed and the people who were injured. And beyond that, there's other people that are greatly impacted by this. We don't know right now what the plan is, um, for the, 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 the wreckage for, for lack of a better term, um. There's a current investigation underway by the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, which people call OSHA, um, that will roll out over the next, I think, about 45 days. It actually happens fairly quickly. Um, and that will take place. And then at some point, there will be uh, some sort of movement, obviously, to remove the the steel that's on mm-hmm. the site. But what happens next isn't really clear. We we asked Jackson Jet Center officials um, comment and, and it's delicate right it's early but this is right. still important and um ceo jeff jackson uh provided a statement to us that says hey you know our focus is on the families uh, of the victims right now and, and understandable um so we don't quite know what will happen um you know boise airport officials were, were like i said pretty clear um that the, that that existing hangar will need to come down and there's other options right um you know, maybe the, the hangar could go uh, offside along Orchard Street or something. I, I don't, I don't mm-hmm. want to speculate too much, but it is kind of this thing that that this that's why this hangar was being built. It wasn't just being built because they wanted a new one. They were trying to replace one that they will lose, um, mm-hmm. and so we'll see how this kind of plays out in coming months. But something that that hadn't been covered that I thought was important for people to understand why this was being built, and so we covered that this week.
0: Well, and I have to say, Don. I mean, I, I literally drive by that on the interstate yeah. every single day, and it is um, it's heart wrenching to to see it because of because that steel is still there, right? You can't get away from it, and so it is important, I think, too, for people to maybe understand a little bit more as to the fact that you know there's a six month investigation that's that's happening, right? I mean, this is this is an investigation site too, so nothing is probably going to happen at least for. That amount of time,
2: and there's been threats of litigation that that I'm sure will, will play out, and and um, some elements there, and and you know I, we had actually so we had covered this hangar <clears throat> about a year ago when it was first proposed, as we do. We do lots of these little projects, mm-hmm. and um, we the the when the construction had just started, the weekend before this hangar had collapsed, we were driving down the freeway, and I saw the first of the. Um, the, the the beams up and I was like oh we should do a what we call a you ask story um, where people will ask us inevitably mm-hmm. like hey what's that and we hadn't been asked yet but I knew it was coming because like you said it was so visible and right. um you know just three days later obviously or four days later it, it collapsed and so now what was a visible going to be future hangar is now a a really gnashed set of uh, steel mm-hmm. and I just think it's really important and, and, and I think does sometimes get lost in some of the the coverage that yes this is this is a building but people died here and and, right. and um, we don't know what caused it or what happened but but three people lost their lives that day and that's that's the important to me that's the important part and so we covered 100%. this and I know that you know people might go oh so what but it is important for people to understand why things are happening, and and that's you know what's at play here.
0: No, I appreciate that. So, Carly, um, last spring, if people can remember, there was a fire that destroyed destroyed the majority of Highlands High School um, over in Pocatello. There's been an ongoing investigation in this, and you've done some reporting recently that showed that there were hazards at the school that had been flagged, but they had not been addressed. So, can you talk to us a little bit? Um, about the investigation so far? And I guess some of these um, hazards that potentially uh, may have started this fire.
4: Yeah, so to give a little bit of background information, Idaho schools are usually inspected at least twice annually, once by a state inspector from the Division of Occupational and Professional Licenses, and once by a local fire department inspector. So we took a look look back at Highland High School in Pocatello. This is a school that it's wing burned down last spring. So we looked back at its inspections before the fire and they showed a series of unaddressed fire hazards, including stage curtains that were not fire treated or fire tested. And those curtains were located near where the fire began. And then a fire alarm panel that was in trouble mode. And that alarm panel was planned to be fixed that summer, but um, that fixing did not come soon enough, of course. And then after the fire, the Pocatello Fire Department and the state fire marshal investigated the fire, they saw a lack of handheld fire extinguishers, missing fire and smoke alarms, and fire and smoke alarms that were in place didn't work as they were supposed to, and missing doors or malfunctioning doors. On top of that, water bells didn't sound, sprinkler systems didn't send an alarm to the monitoring company. So altogether, these issues caused a delay in discovering the fire. And those Mm. who first arrived on scene, according to reports, were actually alerted there because of burglar alarms that went off. Um, And because of that, it allowed it to grow rapidly without being checked by say, for example, a closed door or flame resistant curtains.
0: And and Carly, my understanding too, is that even though these recommendations were given, some of the, um, issue may be that fire departments and the fire marshals get so busy because they're having to go in and, you you know, they make the recommendations, right? And then they go Mm -hmm. back in and they check to make sure the fixes are, are made. But, um, but sometimes that doesn't happen because they're so busy. Is that
4: accurate? Yeah, so I talked to someone from the Pocatello Fire Department, and he explained, you know, we've got a small staff of inspectors. We have as many as 3,000 businesses we're supposed to inspect every year. And so fire departments, they can have some teeth behind what they recommend, but they don't always have the staffing to to make these follow-ups. But they said, you know, after this fire, we're making a change. We're making sure to prioritize follow-ups. And from records that I pulled, that is the case. Um, they have already done an investigation or an inspection of Highland and a follow-up in 2023 after the fire. And then another issue is that state inspectors from the DOPL, they don't actually have as much teeth as a local fire department. And so a lot of theirs are recommendations and that's because schools are grandfathered in. So in whatever year they were built, they're just required to meet those building codes unless the issues present an imminent threat to life or imminent possibility of serious bodily injury and that's pretty rare and then another issue that schools face are tight budgets understaffing aging buildings um, and a lot of leaders are looking to house bill 521 which would provide some more funding for school facilities Mm-hmm. And they say that would help, and it's a systemic issue, and allotting more funding for ongoing maintenance could help them be more pre- proactive.
0: Yeah, it seems that that what th- this investigation has done, and I think the reporting that you've done on this, Carleen, it's really in-depth if people want to go read uh, the article at, at Idaho Ed News, is, is it's just showing that there, there really is a need to get these schools um, really up to code, because- Pocatello School was not the only one. So appreciate the reporting on that. With that said, um, Scott, the potential purchase of the University of Phoenix by the University of Idaho, I think has been controversial, to say the least. So tell us this latest development in this saga, because now the legislature wants to get involved.
1: Yes, now enters the legislature. Um, On Thursday, um, Idaho Representative Brent Crane and Representative John Gannon uh, together, brought forth a um, concurrent resolution, um, um, and and a concurrent resolution is a resolution that involves both how both houses, the house and the Senate. Um, so, if this passes the House, this would go over to the Senate. But essentially, um, it, it does it does a few things. First of all, it it asks the state board of education to reconsider uh, its vote authorizing um, this affiliation and the creation of the the nonprofit corporation to purchase University of Phoenix. Um, It asks for um, involvement of the legislature. It wants some sort of legislative involvement in in this decision, Um, and it requests um, that the board, the University of Idaho, and the University of Phoenix cooperate fully with the legislature. Um, And then it also authorizes the Speaker of the House and the president pro tem of the Senate to act as agents of the legislature for certain actions, which means a potential lawsuit. Um, that in other words, that if, um, if the State Board of Education doesn't agree to involve the legislature, that the legislature could um, sue the State Board of Education. Now, the State Board of Education is um, uh, technically a, an arm of the executive branch. These are uh, people who are appointed by the governor um, plus it, uh, one of the board members is Superintendent of Public Instruction Debbie Critchfield, who is um, a constitutional officer and elected uh, official. Um, the The legislature is concerned about um, the the financial implications of this. This is a five hundred and fifty million dollar uh, purchase, um, and the 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 purchase they're they're proposing to to issue six hundred and eighty five million dollars of bonds. Um, This this was um, voted on last year in May um, after, you know, a few closed door, behind closed doors uh, meetings, and then a a very hastily called where there was only a couple days notice that they were going to do this. Um, And then they met, the State Board of Education met uh, for 90 minutes in an open session, Um, have not taken any public testimony, uh, has not really had any uh, kind of input. over this. And now the legislature uh, is concerned. And I think there's been a lot of concern about whether taxpayers could be on the hook uh, Mm. for um, any financial liabilities if University of Phoenix uh, cannot make, uh, or 4-3 education cannot make uh, these bond payments. Um, And so we'll see, you know, I think there's obviously uh, some concern about Uh, The purchase, they're not necessarily saying we're not going to do this, but the the legislators who are bringing this concurrent resolution forward uh, at least want the legislature to be involved and to have a little more public scrutiny. I think they want to prosecute this decision a little more. Um, And so this is in the early stages was just introduced in uh, for printing uh, on Thursday, it now will have to go to a full committee and then it would have to go to the full House, and then it would go over to the Senate side. Um, but I think they're going to want to act, uh, pretty quickly because this, this purchase is, uh, barreling along the, uh, the approval process.
0: All right. Well, I appreciate the update on that, Scott. So Don, um, there's another lawsuit now that has been filed, uh, to try and stop the Albertson Kroger merger. And this is out of Colorado. Yeah. So, uh, Cincinnati-based Kroger
2: hopes to buy Boise-based Albertsons for about $25 billion. They would <laughs> uh, also spin off a bunch of stores to uh, a third party, um, and it would make the uh, nation's largest supermarket chain. Uh, mm-hmm. This was announced in October of 2022. I have to really think about that because it's been that long. And they'd hoped to close the deal by early this year. Um there had been an expectation that the Federal Trade Commission, which is the uh, government agency that's been assigned to review this deal, um, would take action on it. And um, the chair of that agency had kind of indicated that the um, FTC would likely sue to block it. Um, But we don't have any news on that score yet. Uh, Doesn't mean that they won't take action, but it hasn't happened yet. But what we do have, Mm -hmm. which is Fairly unique in these types of mergers is two separate states now saying, hey, uh, we don't like this, and we don't think it should happen, and suing in state court to block it. And And states do have that right, although they, they generally work with the FTC um, instead of going out on their own. Um, so about a month ago, the state of Washington sued, and they had this... Um, crazy loss. I I don't mean crazy in like the lawsuit was crazy because they brought it. It was crazy because Uh they had all these internal quotes from um, Albertsons and Kroger um, executives. And it was Uh like, what is going on here? My computer's frozen. So hopefully that was.
0: Well, one of the quotes, Don, is, I I mean, honestly, the thing that struck me was one of the Albertsons, uh, what the chief operation officer wrote, we are being bought by our enemy
2: yeah. And it's a fairly well-known executive around town, Susan Morris, who's the company's chief operating officer and has been around for a long time, wrote that. Now, we don't know the province of that email or um,
1: how,
2: how they even got it, um, but it follows the Washington um, case where you saw quotes like from, from executives at the companies that said, prices will not go down. You're basically creating oh. a monopoly. I was shocked to see that. All these things that you're like, what is going on? So That was the suit last month. Now, Colorado is suing, and not only are they citing these internal things and saying it will harm competition and cause problems in the state, but during their investigation, which went on for about a year, they say they found evidence that the two companies colluded to um, hurt employees before the merger was announced. Oh, Essentially what happened is Um, The United Food and Commercial Workers uh, represents many of the uh, people who work at grocery stores. Uh, That union went on strike against Kroger in Colorado. The Colorado Attorney General found communication in its investigation that that the suit claims uh, amounted to collusion. And what had happened is there was uh, an agreement that was written in email that essentially said that That Albertsons, which uh, primarily owns Safeway stores in Colorado, would not Mm -hmm. poach any of Kroger's employees. And the reason this is important is if Albertsons said, yeah, hey, you know, you guys are on strike and Kroger's not giving you a good deal. Come over here and work for us. It would hurt Kroger's, the the, the Colorado Attorney General says, would hurt Kroger's bargaining position with the union. Mm. So they're saying these two companies colluded. They want a court to fine them each a million bucks. And they outline a whole list of things that they say uh, are anti-competitive about the, the deal, including that the stores that they would spin off to a third party are their, their lowest performing stores. Um, they cite reporting by Boise Dev and, and others uh, about previous deals that didn't go the way the companies said they would. Albertsons and Kroger, um, I should just actually say, um, so we always reach out for comment to Albertsons and Kroger.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: In every instance so far, um, I have either gotten a joint statement or a statement from both, both from Albertsons and Kroger. This time, and I didn't make a lot of this in the story, and maybe it's nothing, but this time I got a statement from Kroger, but no response from Albertsons. And I, I thought that was a little curious. So mm-hmm. what that means, I don't know. Maybe they just didn't see my email, but that was odd. <laughs> They claim their their counterclaim, and they say this a lot is they need this merger to compete with Walmart, which sells the most groceries in the com- country. They're not considered a supermarket because they, as you know, from going to a, a Walmart, they sell things right. beyond groceries. Um, and Amazon, which is actually a fairly small player in the grocery industry, but certainly hopes to be much larger. Um, and and they essentially said that the Colorado suit was disappointing because, You know, they didn't wait for for the FTC. Um, They said that they will uh, vigorously defend it in court because they, quote, care deeply about our customers and the communities we serve. And this merger will result in the best outcomes for Colorado consumers. Okay, here's why this is important. Here's why Boise Dev has written almost 100 stories on it over the last (laughs) year. Um, And you can sense my uh, fatigue, but it is important because uh, Albertsons is one of the largest employers in the state of Idaho. Uh, Its corporate headquarters is here. We have asked and tried to get detail from Albertsons on, uh, and Kroger. I should say more specifically on what um, this might mean for Boise. And in fact, this summer, um, Kroger said that they would give us an interview with um, their CEO, um, uh, Ronnie Mullen, and um, said it had to wait for a, a. It's a technical thing. I won't get into it. And that technical thing ended, and. Uh, they wouldn't respond and it's been months. And so they said they would let us talk to the CEO so we could ask him a little bit like, hey, you know, what's this mean for Boise? Will you keep headquarters here? You've got this Albertsons Media mm-hmm. Collective. Will that stay here? We want to know those those answers and we, we don't. And we've asked and, and we don't know why they, they initially said they would let us talk to him and backtracked. Um, I can guess. We've run a lot of stories and not all of them have been positive to them. We've tried to be fair and and illustrate what they've said. We've done stories that have just said their point of view. And so, you know, maybe they're just thinking they're not going to get a fair shake. And I, I can't control that. We have to follow the news. Um, but we'd really love to know what this means. So what we're trying to do is help people understand the process. And people ask me quite a bit, actually, do I think the merger will go through? And I don't know. I'm not an expert. I can just tell right. you what what's happening. And um, it is going to be really, really interesting because we have these states lawsuits now um, and, It is widely expected that the Federal Trade Commission will also take action. Um, Last spring, before any of this legal stuff popped up, the CEO of Kroger said uh, that they had agreed with Albertsons in advance that they would litigate. And so if anybody sued, that they would go to court and litigate. So we'll see what happens.
0: Wow. Okay. That's a lot to ingest, but I really appreciate that update. (laughs) So Carly, there is a law on the books here in Idaho. Um, Maybe folks aren't aware of this, but if you are a teen driver- you could lose your driver's license if you're not in school. So, talk to us about uh, this this article that you recently wrote because the Caldwell School District is looking to maybe enforce this law because a lot what a lot of school districts don't 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 really do anything about this. Is that correct?
4: So, this policy has been on the books for Idaho law for quite some time, but. It just Mm -hmm. came up into the limelight because Caldwell trustees are considering updating their policy, which they've had for a while, just to make it more thorough and have it better match the language that's in Idaho law. And it sounds like it's something that is not used frequently, um, but administrators at districts where the policy is in place, like Bonneville School District in the Idaho Falls area, Um, They say it's helpful that students are aware that this exists and that it can be a measure that's taken. And this discussion is taking place as um, there's been a return to attendance-based funding this year. It was Mm -hmm. enrollment-based for a while from COVID-19 years on. Um, And then at the same time, there's House Bill 521 that would tie facilities funding to attendance. So that's kind of interesting and going on in the background. But this driver's license policy is a tool that districts can use to try to get those older students in class since after age 16, um, they don't have as much teeth behind um, consequences for those kids. So because my
0: my understanding, Carly, is that, and and I didn't know this until I read your article, actually, and I, I should know since I have a teenager. Um... But if you are 16 or older, you can legally drop out of school, right? So that means you'd really, I would assume, would only be able to kind of put this in place um, for for a year because you can get your license at 15 in Idaho.
4: Well, they can use this driver's license policy for anybody who has a driver's license up to like about 18 years old. Oh, okay. So it is one of the measures that they can use for those older students to try to encourage attendance.
0: OK, that's that's so interesting. All right. Well, we'll keep an eye on that. I think that's I think that's fascinating. Um, Logan, I want to go back to the legislature for a little bit with you. Talk to us about this bill that was passed earlier this week. It was passed in the House of Representatives um, and it would require age verification on on adult websites.
3: Yeah, um, the legislature has been very focused in the last couple of years on what they call material that's harmful to children. Um, And generally, when they're when they're saying that they're referring to things like pornography and sexually explicit material. Um, Mm -hmm. But they're not just focused on libraries. They're also focused on the Internet. And that's a topic that comes up during these library debates is why are you guys talking about libraries when all the stuff that a kid can get on just their phone or their tablet is, uh, you know, the Internet is kind of wide open. Um, So Idaho has joined the list of states that are working on legislation to require these adult websites to. Verify the age of their users, uh, making sure that, you know, somebody who's under 18 is not accessing uh, sexually explicit material online. Um, so this piece of legislation, House Bill 498, uh, like you said, it passed the House. It would require these websites to um, use what the bill calls uh, reasonable age verification methods. So that would be some sort of online tool that would um, typically this would look like taking a scan of your driver's license or, you um, Some tools that are being used in other states um, are there's there's like a a software company that'll take a a scan of your face using your your phone camera and estimate what age you are. Um, I I don't know whether that specific tool would be allowed under the legislation that the House passed. Um, Mm -hmm. But so it's something that the lawmakers are working on. Um, And these adult website companies are not super excited about it. Um, They. Um, Some some are going along with it and using these kind of age verification tools. Others have just completely blocked access to their websites in certain states. Uh, So, for example, the parent company behind the website Pornhub has completely blocked access uh, for users in the states of Montana, North Carolina, and Utah after uh, those states passed these type of laws and the company is challenging them in court. Um, So, sorry if you live in Montana or Utah, apparently you can't watch porn right now on those websites. Um, it's kind of setting up also an interesting fight at the Idaho legislature because earlier in the week, the Senate passed a bill, which would require device manufacturers. So that would be like Apple making the iPhone or, uh, Google Uh with their pixel phones. The Senate's version would require the phone manufacturer to have an age filter, whereas the house's version would require the website to have an age filter. Uh, so I'm very interested to see which of these bills move forward now that, um, the house has the senate's bill the senate has the house's bill i'm really interested to see where this legislation moves forward
0: yeah okay but right now it's just past the house of representatives correct
3: that's right yeah so each of these these two different approaches have each passed a chamber um so yeah none of these laws have not gone into effect yet um and it's the government can can find sexual content um Mm-hmm. distasteful or or harmful to children, but it it does it is technically speech and does technically fall under the First Amendment. Um so the lawmakers have to be very precise and very careful about how they draft this type of legislation.
0: Yeah, so the language really matters on this. Um, all right. oh my appreciate gosh that. yeah appreciate that update. Hey, Don, I only have about two minutes left, but I want to get to the plans for College of Western Idaho in Boise in particular because this feels like it's been going on forever. um but It's evolving now. I mean, this might move forward.
2: I thought of you while writing the story because of our last discussion about this. Yeah, so CWI bought some land in 2016, took a bond out, didn't work, sat on the land. Now the land's valuable. Now they're trying to develop it. Uh, They're working with Meridian firm, Ball Ventures Alquist on this and a couple of others. Um, The plan has changed quite a bit. Um, Mm -hmm. They um, have added a lot of retail. And part of that is because BVA... Uh, as Boise devs Sydney kid broke earlier this year um, has teamed up with the founder of the company that did the village of Meridian village at Meridian in um, mm-hmm. Boise town square, oddly enough. Um, and so there's a lot of retail in this. It's like, I hate to call everything like a village, but it's a little bit like the village.
0: Kind of is. It's actually
2: called, yeah, it's actually called Whitewater Village, quite a bit smaller scale, but it would include an eight story building that would uh, house CWI, a future residential and retail building, a large parking garage, a hotel, uh, and a standalone retail building, uh, all with this kind of nexus to the Boise River green Belts, And um, it's going to go through design review at the city of Boise. And that's the quickest I've ever said a story in my life on your show.
0: Okay. I have one more question though. If it goes through, when it goes through design review and it gets approval, does it then automatically move forward?
2: Yeah, it kind of does. The city's zoning code change has made it a lot easier for these types of projects to move forward. Um, They actually have to go through design review twice once for the CWY building and once for the uh, campus overall. I think they might have to do design review on some of the other elements. Uh, Don't quote me on that. I shouldn't say it out loud, but Uh oh well. Um, and so, yeah, so it, it, it would move through. Um, they hope to get moving on this. Um, they have said it's a $250 million project. That would make it, uh, by my rough calculations, one of the 10 most valuable um, in, in Boise. And so wow. uh, ambitious, we'll see, t- t- you know, time yep. will tell. Um, but CWI needs a campus, and this is where they say they're going to make it happen.
0: All right. Well, as always, I so appreciate all of you taking a whole hour out of your busy day. To come and speak with us so big appreciation to our panelists don day the founder and editor of boise dev.com scott mcintosh opinion editor with the idaho statesman carly flandero reporter with idaho ed news and logan finney with idaho reports remember check all of their reporting out we've got some great journalists in our area we're very lucky about that thanks so much for listening to idaho matters boise state public radio and idaho matters are members of the npr network it's an independent coalition of public media podcasters You can find more shows in the network wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Gemma Gaudette. We'll see you tomorrow. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.